This morning, we're going to start a brand new series called Christmas Playlist. And I called it that is because what we're going to do, as I mentioned in the introduction video, what we're going to be doing is we're going to look at four different Christmas carols. I don't know about you, but I love Christmas carols. Musicians typically hate Christmas carols because they're a real pain to play. Can I get an amen, Mary Beth? And so uh, they don't usually like them, but I love Christmas carols and I love them. Uh, many of them have such great theology in them. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at four of them and see what we find in those in the lyrics of those songs and, and how they're based right out of the word. And I think it's going to be a really uh, a source of encouragement for you for these next four Sundays as we focus in on the Christmas message. And, you know, as I said during the prayer time, Christmas makes no sense whatsoever without the gospel. It does not make any sense. I mean, think about it. We bring a tree into our house, a dead tree into our house, and we put lights on it and decorate it. And then we give out presents to everybody when it's not our birthday. And we, I mean, we decorate our houses. We do all these strange things. We eat food that we don't eat at any other time of the year, which I think is a cry and shame, frankly. But, uh, but uh, we do all these things, and for what? If there's nothing more than just the Christmas day, it doesn't make any sense at all. But when we understand what Christmas is all about, that Christmas is the birth of a Savior, the birth of the one who's come to, to die for us all, and that, that He paid the penalty for my sin, that we, when we understand all of that, then it becomes a really powerful and a holy time. And so we're going to be examining that. And this morning... We're going to be looking at the song Silent Night. It's one of my favorite. When I was growing up, it was probably my favorite uh, Christmas carols. How many of you, Silent Night is one of your favorites? Is your favorite? Yeah. Well, we're going to look at that this morning. I think it's going to, I, I really believe God has a word of encouragement for you today uh, in this. So, but, but would, before we get started, would you just bow your head and let's just ask for the Lord's help today. Fathers, we come into your presence. We are so needy, Lord God. I look around and, I, and, and just about everybody in this room, I can look at them and, and I can see and I know of situations or problems or issues or things that, that they need your help. And Lord God, we, we come into this place today just simply admitting that we are a needy people, that we need your help. We need to hear from you. We need your touch. And so God, that's what we're asking for in these next few moments. We know that your word has power. And that your word can change us. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And your word can do what no other power can do. And so, Lord, we're asking that you would anoint your word by the power of your spirit. That you would speak to us deep in our innermost being. That, Lord, not only would you anoint me to speak, but, God, that you anoint all of our ears to hear what you're saying to us. And, Lord, I just believe you for encouragement. I believe you for, for life change. I believe you to accomplish everything that you want to accomplish in us today. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. A few days before Christmas 1792 in the city of Salzburg, Austria, a young unmarried seamstress named Anna gave birth to her third child. The father had disappeared from Anna's life months before, leaving her alone and destitute. And in those days... Unwed pregnancy not only came with a cultural shame, but it came with a fine as well, a, a legal fine. And it, and, it, and it could be at times as much 
uh, or excuse me, more than a year's wage for a common laborer. So it was far more than a woman like Anna could possibly pay. And what that meant was that without the fine being paid, that the child could not be baptized. And of course, you know, they, they did infant baptism back in those days and that sort of thing. And, and uh, we, we don't do that here. But, but, but if, a, if a person wasn't baptized, then that limited their rights as a citizen. And, and if this boy couldn't be baptized, it would mean that his rights as a citizen would be severely restricted. And in those days, because of those situations, children born in such circumstances were often deserted and they were just left to die but Anna had no intention of doing this. Instead, she planned to, to raise her son on her own as best as she could. There was a man in the city of Salzburg by the name of Joseph Wolmuth. Now, he was a well-to-do man, but he was not exactly well-liked, even though he was wealthy. In fact, the, the reason he, the way he made his money was he was the local executioner. He, he was like the hangman. And so, though the job paid well, it was neither an admired nor prestigious position. I mean, nobody wants to be seen hanging out with the executioner in town, but he made a lot of money doing it. Well, Joseph heard of Anna's plight, and, and maybe because he was something of an outcast himself, he agreed to pay the fine so that the boy could be baptized. And, and he even agreed to be the registered godfather and allowed the boy to be given his name, Joseph. Though Joseph's baptism prevented him from being a complete outcast in society and in the community, he was still an outsider. He was still other. He was still different. And, and he was unable to do many of the things that quote unquote legitimate children were able to do, such as uh, attend school, uh, learn a trade or, or seek employment. And for an innocent boy who had done nothing to deserve it, his was a tough life defined by rejection and condemnation. Young Joseph wasn't allowed to participate in religious activities, so instead what he would do, he would spend his lonely afternoons singing on the steps of the church. Now, he may not have been welcome among the, quote, decent people who filled the pews each Sunday, but he still felt at home in the shadow of the cathedral, and so he would go there just to sing. Well, as it turns out, Joseph had an angelic voice and one day, the local choir master heard him singing, and he was so impressed that he decided to abandon protocol, and he, he sort of bent the rules a little bit, and he invited Joseph to join his elite group of performers, which in turn gave him the opportunity to receive an education through the church. Well, Joseph proved himself to be not only a gifted vocalist and musician, in fact, he, he ended up becoming the master of many different instruments, but he was also an outstanding student. Well, the vicar of the church encouraged Joseph to pursue a career in ministry, but there remained the na nagging problem of the circumstances surrounding his birth, his so-called illegitimacy. And since Joseph was born out of wedlock, he normally, in those days, by their rules, wouldn't even allowed to be, allowed, be allowed to attend seminary. So, but the vicar went to bat for him and ultimately the church authorities granted special permission for him to attend. And then finally, in 1815, at the age of 22, Joseph Moore graduated from seminary and was ordained as a priest. Well, the following year, he wrote the song for which he is well known. And, and it is, according to Time Magazine, the most popular Christmas song ever between the years of 1978 and, 19, excuse me, excuse, and 2014, 
it was recorded more than 730 times. Joseph wrote the verses in German and eventually they were translated into English. And, and as they were translated, it was a thought for thought thing. If, if you go look up the actual German words, they're a little bit different than what we sing, but they, they translated into English and make it fit the word, the, the music and gave the idea behind the, the words. But, but we've heard those verses. We've sung those many, many times. And as, as we sing, you know, the first verse, you know, Starts silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. And we're typically familiar with three or maybe four verses. Uh, most hymnals will have three or four verses that are, that are in, of the song included. But what we, what was discovered not too long ago, actually, in a, uh, a packet of, of documents that, that were uh, from his, uh, his desk, from his study, Three extra verses were discovered that, that nobody even knew that, that they existed. They, and they're, so they're not included with the others in most situations. But together, these verses tell the story of God's grace and of His power to calm the turmoil that so often defines the world in which we live. And today, what I want to do is I want to look at, take just a few minutes and look at these three additional, so, quote unquote, lost verses of Silent Night and consider the message they present, present because they, they remind us of the message of Christmas, which means they remind us the message of the gospel. Because remember, Christmas means nothing without the gospel. Christmas is, is foolishness without the gospel. There are three truths found in these verses which we can find in the presence, uh, excuse me, in which we can find the presence of God's grace. First one is this. And I love this. I want you to, to remember this. God loves those who feel the most rejected. He loves those who feel the most rejected. The first unknown verse of Silent Night, this is how it goes. It says, Silent Night, Holy Night, here at last, healing light. From the heavenly kingdom sent abundant grace for our intent. Jesus, salvation for all. Jesus, salvation for all. You know, that's a really powerful statement. Jesus' salvation for all. Jesus came and on the cross, he purchased salvation for all. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone receives it, but he purchased it for everyone. It's available for everyone. And, you know, there are many, many religions that believe in salvation for some. You know, salvation for the few, salvation for the, for the ones who, who look and talk and act exactly like they do, salvation for the, those who toe the line and meet every requirement and consider themselves a, a cut above the others. In fact, even Christianity has at times been contorted and distorted to present a message of elitism and self-righteousness to, to outsiders. And, and that has alienated some people, we probably, everybody in this room probably knows someone who won't come to church because they say it's quote, full of hypocrites. Anybody know anybody like that? Ever heard that from somebody? I can't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. Now, it's always funny to me because, you know, Walmart's full of hypocrites too, but they don't mind going there. But, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, wherever, that's just the thought on my mind. But uh, there's another thing I always heard. Somebody said, well, if you let a hypocrite between, come between you and God, it must mean the hypocrite's closer to God than you are. But that's a whole different story. But, uh, and, and listen, sometimes when they say, oh, it's just full of hypocrites, sometimes it's nothing more than an excuse. Sometimes it's them just coming up with something that they've heard before because they don't want to have to deal with it. They don't want to go to church. 
But you know what? Sometimes it comes from a very real experience that that person had with someone who called themselves a Christian, but that Christian didn't understand that they did nothing to make themselves acceptable to God, that God did it all, that God's grace was offered to them free of charge, that they were cleansed by the blood of Jesus alone, and they became proud of themselves and proud of their ability to keep the rules, and and they looked down on other people around them. We've probably all known people like that in our lives. So with that in mind, I think the first people who need to be reminded that Jesus died for all are those of us who have found grace and forgiveness in Christ. We need to be reminded Jesus didn't just die for me. He didn't just die for people like me. He died for people that are very, very different from me as well. We need to remember that Jesus died for for the vilest, wickedest, meanest, orneriest, evilest, most cantankerous person we know. Anybody know somebody like that? Don't, don't point fingers. You can raise your hand, but don't point fingers at anybody. I said, don't point fingers. Now I told you now, uh, but, but, but we have to remember, we have to remember that uh, uh, when we meet that person that only, not only lives in sin, but they flaunt their sin and they mock the name of God in their sin. Have you met, you know, people like that. And there are people like that. When we meet someone like that, we have to remind ourselves that Jesus loves that person. I don't know about you, but my first response is to get offended and get angry and to go on the attack. Anybody here attack dogs with me? You know what I'm talking about? But I've got to remind myself, Jesus loves that person, that Jesus died for that person, that that person is in fact one of his favorites. And when we remember that Jesus died to purchase salvation for whosoever will come. I love that phrase, whosoever. You know who that includes? Anybody who wants. Whosoever. When we remember that he died to purchase that salvation for whosoever, not just me, not just people like me, then what happens is we don't end up like some of those people that are figuratively speaking, lean against the cross and they point their finger at everybody and say, hey, you dirty, rotten sinner, you better get right or you're going to hell. But instead, you know what we do when we understand that, that Jesus died for all of us? that he died for this entire world and that I'm no better than anybody else. Instead, then we kneel at the foot of the cross and we say, I'm a sinner who found grace. I'm a sinner who found forgiveness. I'm, I'm just, I was just as dirty and broken as anybody else in the world, but I found grace and forgiveness and purpose in my life. And I want to invite you to come because there's plenty of room for you here with me. Come kneel with me at the cross. That's why I love the passage where Paul is writing to the Corinthians And he's sort of reminding them of where they came from. You see, the Corinthians, if you read the first part of the letter, they were having a little pride problem because they were saying things like, well, I'm a Paul and I'm of Apollos. I follow him. I follow his teaching. And some got real spiritual, said, I'm of Jesus. But he reminded them some things about where they came from. Listen to what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 6. He makes a statement, but I want you to hear what he says in the tail end. He says, do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now, a lot of us like to quote that at people. But what we need to do before we do 
is we need to read the next verse. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed. You didn't wash yourself. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Some of you used to be like this. You know, when I get upset at other people in their sin, what's happening is that I'm forgetting I used to be like that. I'm forgetting that I was, I, I was, it may have been a different sin, but I was just as lost in my sin as they were beforehand. And, and we, we, we get upset at people. It's kind of funny to me because when we get upset and get angry at other people in their sin, this is how I interpret it. I, I just feel like at that moment, what we're doing is we're getting angry because they're sinning differently than we are <laughs> because we are all, we all have our own issues, don't we? But when we see a, a sinner committing a sin that, that we just detest, that just really hurts our hearts, that makes us angry, whatever it is, we need to, in that moment, need to remember where we came from and what Christ saved us from and that we were just like them before Jesus saved us. And when we remember that we're no different than any other sinner, that, that Jesus saved us by His grace alone, that I wasn't any better than anybody else, and that's why He picked me, not because I was better than anybody else. But, but when we do that, then we begin to walk in humility as we share the gospel with people. But on the other hand, I want you to consider this as well. There are some people who struggle with this idea of salvation for all. Not because of anything that anyone else has done. Not because of, you know, they say, well, they're hypocrites and they did this and they, they said they're Christian and they treated my, me like this. But some people struggle with the idea of salvation of all because of what they have done. Because of what they have done. We, we all know people who just can't bring themselves to step inside the doors of the church. And it's not because they don't like the music or the preaching or they can't sit still for an hour or that they've necessarily got better things to do. They, they, they can't bring themselves to step inside the doors of the church because they don't feel worthy of being there. Have you ever heard somebody say something like, oh, if I showed up, the, the church, the, the, the walls would cave in, the church would cave in on me. That's a way they're joking around of saying, I'm, I'm not worthy. I can't go in there. I've done too much. I've been too bad. I can't walk into the presence of God. And, 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 and they know that they bring with them a sinful past. And often they bring with them a sinful present. And they just don't feel that they can fit in. They don't feel welcome. And listen, often it's not because of the actions of the people of the church. Often the people of the church will embrace them open-heartedly and, and with, whole, uh, 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 with their arms wide open to them. So it's not often, uh, often it's not because of the people of the church or the actions of the church that they don't feel welcome, but they don't feel welcome because they're so self-conscious of their own sin that they naturally just assume that people are judging them or will judge them if they walk into church. And yes, I know there are some people who reject the gospel because of a hard and embittered heart, but I also know that there are those who have not accepted Jesus Christ yet because they don't understand the message of grace and healing and they don't, they, they have not accepted Christ because they feel too dirty or they feel too broken. But you know what King David said? King David said, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. 
Isaiah 56, 8 says, The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those who are already gathered. He's saying not only the, the people of Israel I'm going to gather, but there are people, other outcasts I'm going to pull them into me. Joseph Moore, who wrote Silent Night, was born into a world that made him an outcast from the start. Into a religious environment that offered him nothing, no compassion, no grace, no hope of salvation. But the story of Christmas and the message of the gospel cannot be contained forever. Joseph Moore discovered what it means here at last, a healing light. Christmas is a reminder for us that light entered into this world, into this dark, broken world, and shows us the love of God that is willing to pay the price, any price, to restore our relationship with Him. No matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter who we've betrayed. Listen, that's the message of John 3.16. One of the most loved verses in all the Bible. It's the message. For God so loved the world. Not, not for God so loved Dave and the people like him. But for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes. I love that. Whoever, not just the religious elite, not just the high and mighty, not just those with wealth and fame and power, not just those that are privy to some secret truth, not just those that become good enough, but whoever, whoever, whoever. I'm here to tell you, I'm a whoever. There's healing grace in Jesus and he can heal any brokenness in any life. That's the glory of Christmas and the power of the gospel. That leads us into the next verse that Joseph Moore wrote, in which he tells us that Jesus embraces us even while we're unembraceable. Even when we're unembraceable. Here's the next verse. Silent night, holy night. Sleeps the world in peace tonight. God sends his son to earth below, a child from whom all blessings flow. Jesus embraces mankind. Jesus embraces mankind. What does that mean? How did he embrace mankind? He embraced us by becoming one of us. Here's the thing, though. God did not send his son in the world to say, congratulations on a job well done. You're doing such a great job of managing this world. I just came to tell you, great job. No, God didn't send his son into the world because we were good. God sent his son into the world because we were evil, because we were lost, because we were dead in our sins, because we were broken and we needed healing. We need him. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, there are many, many people in this world, probably in this room, we can see how the world could be. We have this vision in our mind of what things could be like. We see how maybe, you know, on a big scale that the nations could succeed if they would just work together for mutual peace and prosperity, that there's no need for war, that communities don't need to exist in chaos, that families don't need to suffer from endless turmoil, that individuals need not struggle with isolation to despair, 
The truth is we all, we see all the evils and all the injustices of the world. We, we recognize all of these things that are rampant. It's easy to see them and, 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 and we know that they're really bad. We know they're destructive, but here's the problem. We just can't fix it. We can't fix it. And listen, everybody has their own ideas of how to fix it. You know, they, they say, oh, if we could just get, a ra- get rid of racism, then the world would be a good place. I agree it'd be wonderful if we could get, a ra- get rid of racism. How do you do that? You can't do that. We can't fix. I can't fix hatred in another person's heart. If we could just get rid of, uh, of guns, then we'd have, we'd be done with violence. No, you, you would just have violence in a different form. Because the problem is the human heart. If we could get rid of fill in the blank and the, and people have all their ideas of how to fix the world, but the problem is everything we try, nothing works because humans, humanity, humankind cannot fix what's wrong with the world. We can't fix it. We've tried. In fact, we can't even fix wrong, what's wrong with our own lives, much less what's wrong with everything else. We've tried. Why do you think that the self-help section in the bookstore is one of the biggest sections in all the bookstore? It's because there's something in humanity that says something is wrong, something is broken, and here's how you what you need to do to fix it inside of you. And so we have things in there, you know, they'll say, if you just get your finances in order, then your life will work. If you'll just get in shape, then your life will work. And, and none of those things are wrong, but none of those things fix what's broken inside. We can't fix it. And the problem is we can't get rid of any of those things. Because they're issues of the human heart. And we can't change anyone's heart, much less our own. That's what Paul is talking about. He said in Romans 3.23, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And as I mentioned earlier, there, there are religions built on the idea that God loves those who are lovable. That the Lord loves those who love the Lord. And they don't say it exactly like that. They're not going to use those words. But instead what they'll do is they will present some list of rules and regulations and say, this is what it takes to please God. If you will do this list, if you will do these things, then you will be loved by God and everything will be okay. And some people wrongly assume that the message of Christianity is the same. That if you want to be saved, if you, if you ever hope to be right with God, you better find a way to be good because God will not accept anything less than that. So you've got to be good so that God will love you. In fact, I've even heard people say that when life is over and they're standing before God, they just say, well, I just hope that the good in my life outweighs the bad. So he'll let me into heaven. That's just not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says in Romans 5, 6, when we were unable to help ourselves at the right time, Christ died for us, although we were living against God. And then Romans 5, 8, but God shows shows his great love for us in this way. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. We needed help from the outside. We couldn't do it. And Joseph Moore 
is talking about this when he says Jesus embraces mankind. Jesus loves you in spite of your sin, in spite of your past, in spite of your secrets. Now, I want to add to that because some people say Jesus loves you like you are. That is true. But I want to make sure you understand he loves you too much to leave you like that. So it doesn't mean Jesus, because Jesus loves me in my sin doesn't mean that he wants me to stay living in my sin. He make, the Bible makes it very, very clear. He wants us to walk out of that and repent of our sin. Jesus said to many, many people when he healed them and he'd say to them, all right, you're forgiven. Go and what? Go and sin no more. So there's always this call to repentance. But, but I do want you to know that, that in spite of your sin, he does love you. In spite of what you've done in the past, he does love you. In spite of the secrets and things, the darkness that nobody else knows about, he loves you. And he loves you enough to die on a cross for you, to forgive you for all of you done, you, you've ever done, and to wipe your slate clean, to give you a new life and a new nature and a new identity. Jesus embraces mankind. But I want to make it more personal. I want you to hear me this morning. Jesus embraces you. He embraces you. He doesn't hold you at arm's length until you are finally good enough to be accepted. Some of us struggle with this because even after we get saved, we think somehow that Jesus really loves a future version of us. When I finally get some things figured out and get my life in order, and we think he loves a future version of us, but he can't possibly really love me now. I want you to know that as not biblical at all, he loves you right now, right where you are. He cannot love you. He will not love you any less. He cannot love you anymore. And it's not because of who you are or what you've done that he loves you. He loves you, period. And because of that love, he wants to change you. So he's not going to love you down the road more when you get things figured out, when you're walking in greater holiness, when you're walking in greater intimacy. That doesn't mean he's going to love you more then. It just means that he's walked you down the road a little bit longer and he's not waiting for you to get good enough before he can love you. You know, to, to say that you have to get some things right before you come to God. And I don't know if you've ever heard anybody say that. I've had people say to me, well, I want to come. I want to come, preacher. I want to come, pastor. But, you know, I'm just, I just need to get some things straightened out of my life and then I'll come. And that just doesn't make any sense. Because that's like saying, listen, I need to go wash up so I can take a shower. That's what it's like. You don't get cleaned up so that you can take a shower. You take a shower to get cleaned up. You don't get cleaned up to come to God. You come to God to get cleaned up. That's the beauty and the glory of the gospel. That it's not up to you. If you could have done it, you would have done it by now. That's, that's the most... Powerful statement for a lot of people that are thinking, I'm going to get things straightened out on my own. If you could have, you would have. That's why we need Jesus. We don't make ourselves clean to come to Jesus. Jesus came to make us clean before God. And then the last thing that the song reminds us of, and this one, I think, I think some of us in this room need to hear this today. And is that God brings peace in the midst of turmoil. God brings peace in the midst of turmoil. Listen to these words. Silent night.
holy night, mindful of mankind's plight, the Lord in heaven on high decreed from heavenly, from earthly woes, we would be freed. Jesus, God's promise for peace. Jesus, God's promise for peace. I, I love that line that says, mindful of mankind's plight, that he was aware that it was on his mind. He was thinking about the situation that we had created for ourselves with our sin. And listen, here's the thing. I know this true of everybody in this room. We have all gone through horrible, painful, absolutely miserable times in life. And many times in the, we're in those situations, what we've done is we have resorted to the comfort of a pity party. Anybody here ever resorted to the comfort of a, of a pity party? I just want to see your hand. I got both hands up. If I could raise both feet, I would, but that'd be a little uncomfortable and look awkward for everybody else too. And it would look really bad on the live stream, I'm sure. But, but we've all been there. You know, we're all, we're all there where we're singing, you know, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, right? Everybody sing it with me. Nobody knows my sorrow. Yeah, we do that. And when we do that, we begin to think, that nobody really understands where we are. And then we start to think that nobody cares. I imagine every one of us in this room has at some time or another, maybe had that thought cross our mind that maybe God just doesn't understand what it's like to be in my shoes, to be in my situation. And that if he does understand, then maybe he just doesn't care. You know, the, the disciples felt that way one time. We read about it in Mark chapter 4. It's one of my favorite stories. This is what it says. That day when, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. I think that's a key phrase there. Let us go over to the other side. He told them we have a destination. There's some place we're going. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was, uh, just as he was in the boat. They were, there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. So Jesus and the disciples, they're in this boat, they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. Jesus told them, we're going to go to the other side. And, 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 and in, while they're on this boat, up comes what the Bible calls a furious squall. I love that language. It means a really bad storm. And the wind tossed the boat around and the waves were crashing uh, from all sides. It says that the water was swamping the boat. And listen, I don't, I'm not, I don't know much about boating, but I do know this. Water outside the boat, good. Water inside the boat, bad. Right? That's a general rule of thumb for boating. If Now you're, you're, an, you're an expert boatsman now. But, but, but G, G, Mark says this. Jesus was asleep in the stern. I love this little detail on a cushion. I love that he throws that in. While the disciples were in a panic over the storm, he was in the back of the boat, sleeping in heavenly peace in perfect comfort on a cushion. What happened next? Verse 38. The disciples woke him and said to him, listen to this. See if this doesn't echo the way you felt at times. Teacher. Don't you care? Don't you care that if we drown? 
Do you not, does it matter to you? We're about to die and you're sleeping on a cushion. You're enjoying life and, and what, don't you care that we drown? Don't you care how many times have we felt that in our hearts and we're going through something and we've been praying and nothing has happened and we sit there and we begin to say, God, don't you even care? Well, you probably know what happened next. Verse 39, he, Jesus, got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Or some translations, peace, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. You know what? You may find yourself from time to time in the midst of a furious squall in your life. The winds are blowing and the waves are crashing over the bows of your life and it feels as if everything is out of control and that your life may just spiral into oblivion at any moment. And it may seem at times like Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the back of the boat, unaware of what's happening in your life. And you've cried out to him in prayer, but it seems as if nothing is happening and you've wept as you pled your case to him, but nothing has changed. And you feel all alone in the midst of the storm that's about to overwhelm you. And I want you to remember this phrase from the song that we are looking at today. Mindful of mankind's plight. Jesus is mindful of your plight. Jesus knows about the storm that's going on in your life. Jesus knows what's going on in your life. And he cares about what's going on in your life. And most of all, he has the power to do something about it. Now, we didn't read this part in the story, but... Do you remember what Jesus said to the disciples after he called this, calmed the storm? Anybody remember? He asked them a question. He asked them two questions, actually. He said, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now listen, I don't think Jesus was trying to rebuke them. I, I've heard some people say, well, he was trying to tell them that they could calm the storm, that they could speak to it. But I don't think that's what he was doing at all. I think he was saying he was just, it, 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 it wasn't that at all. I, I think he was just reminding them that he was with them. It, it, was, the, it was that they should have had faith that Jesus was with them. And Jesus had told them, we're going to the other side. I already told you where we're going, and if I told you where we're going, I'm going to make sure we get there. Don't you have any faith in me? Don't you, don't you know that even though I'm asleep in the back of the storm, that I know what's going on and my grace is going to carry us? Don't you have faith that I'm going to get you where I said I'd get you? Here's the thing. If they'd understood that, then they had no reason to worry. Even if Jesus didn't calm the storm, he would still carry them through the storm. I, I, as a story that I shared uh, maybe a time or two. I, I know I have it on a Wednesday night. I don't know if on a Sunday, but it just it fits so well here. Several years ago, a young preacher in his 20s uh, went to work with a missionary named Jim Mann in Mexico. Now, Jim was uh, one of the most unusual missionaries you could meet. He, was the, he, he, he went as a missionary to Mexico, didn't speak any Spanish. But he would get up and just give a simple message and give an altar call in a village somewhere and, and through an interpreter and people would just flock and get saved. It was just, he was just a real man of God. But one day, while this young preacher was down there working with him, Jim said that he wanted to go down to a certain village 
about which he had had a dream. He had had a dream the night before that he was going to go to this village to preach. And so he decided to do that. And the young preacher asked where it was. He said, okay, great. Where's this village, Jim? And Jim said, I'm not sure. It's over the mountains somewhere in the desert. Now, listen, I, I, I really feel for this young preacher because if I'm asking for directions to someplace, I need something a little more specific than it's somewhere in the desert. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, this young preacher said, oh, oh please, let, let's not do this, Jim. It, it, it's August in Mexico. It's 120 degrees in the shade. We have no idea where this village is. And I know we're going to get lost. And Jim said to the young preacher, well, don't go. I'm not asking you to go, but I'm going. And then, you know, the young preacher is like, oh, okay. I can't let this old guy get out there in the desert all alone. So, so they went and they, they drove and drove and drove. And, and eventually the old missionary left the road, pulled off, started driving right straight through the desert. They were just out in the middle of, of this desert. And, and while they're out in the middle of the desert, all of a sudden the truck broke down. It broke down. And this young preacher, who's already had a, has a bad attitude about everything going on, he just thought to himself, perfect, perfect. And he asked Jim, can you fix this truck? And Jim said, I know nothing about auto mechanics. He's, and Jim looked at the young preacher and said, what about you? He, he's, and he looked at him and he said, Jim, I'm a preacher. I can't even change spark plugs. And he, then he said, looked at me and said, we're going to die. And there was nothing in sight. There was no sign of life of any type, not a cow, not a dog, not a person in sight, nothing. No roads, no telephone lines, nothing. And they just, they, they, they looked and they, they couldn't find the highway from where they, where they were. They were just, it was too far back. They were just out in the middle of this sun-baked desert and and so Jim climbed out of the truck and there near the truck, there was this little mesquite bush nearby that had just a little puddle of shade at the bottom of it. And, and so Jim stretched out and put his head in that shade and he pulled his hat down over his eyes and went to sleep. Well, that young preacher was absolutely furious. He thought this crazy old man has gotten us killed. And he just started pacing back and forth. And finally, he walked up and just kicked the sole of Jim's boot and said, wake up, wake up, what are you doing? And Jim just sort of lifted up his hat a little bit and said, I'm going to lie right here and see how God handles this. And, and that was just almost more than that young preacher could handle. He was so angry, he just kept pacing back and forth. And then suddenly, off in the distance, on the distant horizon, a little crowd, cloud of dust appeared and and it just kept getting closer and closer and bigger and bigger. And then they began to hear this rattling noise. And, and Jim Mann look, uh, uh, looked up and he sat up and he said, Ah, oh, that would be it. And the young preacher said, That would be what? And Jim Mann said, uh, uh, The answer. That would be the answer. And the young preacher said, What is it? And Jim said, I don't know. And it came closer and closer. And finally, they realized it was a big, battered, beat up blue panel truck with the side door rope, rope clothes on it. And, and, it, and it came straight across the desert. No road, no, no people, no telephone line or anything like that. It just came straight across the desert, right straight at them. 
Well, it came and it screeched to a halt right beside their truck with dust flying everywhere. And a teenage boy, uh, unta- he hopped out and, and untied the, the side door and slid it open and, and jumped out with three or four tools in his hands and a blue bandana on his head. And he climbed up on the bumper of that old truck and of their truck and he lifted up the hood and he tinkered with it for a little bit and then looked at the young preacher and said, listo, listo, which means ready, ready. So the young preacher climbed in, turned the key and that truck roared to life and that boy slammed the hood wrapped up his tools jumped back in the panel truck roped the door shut and took off just like that it was done it was over well they got in the truck and jim started driving down uh, across the, the desert again and they were driving along this young preacher was still just fuming still and he was mad he said jim did you know those people were coming he thought it was all a setup And Jim said, no, I've never seen them before in my life. And the young preacher said, well, how did they know we were here? And he said, I don't know. And the young preacher said, where did they come from? And he said, I don't know these things. And finally, Jim said, I have a question for you. And he looked at the young preacher and he said, is Jesus in the boat? And the young preacher said, what? And he said, is Jesus in the boat? And that young preacher looked at him and said, well, yes, Jesus is in the boat. And then he quoted the old refrain that says, no waters can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and skies. And he looked at that young preacher and he said, if Jesus is in the boat, a miracle's on the way. The disciples were in the boat in the middle of a fierce storm. And they came to Jesus, completely overcome with fear for their lives. And in that moment, Jesus spoke words to the wind and the waves that we so often need spoken into our lives. Peace. Be still. Oh, how we need to hear those words spoken in our storms. But here's the thing. Sometimes he says those words to our storms. Sometimes he speaks to the storms of our lives and he says, peace, be still. And the storm abates and the circumstances change and a new calm settles into our life. And we look and we're amazed at the miracle that Jesus has done, that the storm is done. It's past. It's over. But I'm here to tell you more often than not, he speaks those words not to our storms but to our hearts. He says the same words. Peace, be still. But instead of the the wind and the waves subsiding, our hearts settle down and find the peace of God that passes all understanding. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything. You can translate that another way. You could say, don't worry about anything. Any worriers here, by the way? Let me see your hand if you're a worrier. Okay, this is for you. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And what happens? And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm here to tell you one of the things we celebrate at Christmas is that Jesus came to bring us peace. 
He came to bring us peace. That was in the announcement of his, of his birth by the angels on the day of his birth. In Luke chapter 2, they sang glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. He came to bring us peace. We ourselves are not capable of manufacturing peace. The headlines will tell you all uh, uh, that human beings are capable of creating in this world. We create nothing but chaos and confusion. And, And this is not only on a global scale, but many of us have witnessed it firsthand. We have oftentimes created situations and storms in our own lives that stirred up nothing but chaos and confusion. And some of us are living in that chaos and confusion even today. You'd like to be free of it, but nothing has worked. Nothing has brought peace. You've tried making more money thinking that's the answer, but that's only brought about a whole new set of problems. Higher taxes, more expenses. You've tried finding meaning and pleasure, but that's only created more emptiness. Like like Solomon, when when he tried everything and ended up saying, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's all empty. It's all meaningless. I've had everything, I've tried everything. It didn't work. You've tried everything the world has to offer, but nothing has brought you peace. And I'm here to tell you today, if you invite Jesus into your life, if you surrender to His Lordship, if you will give Him everything you have, even the the bad things, He will fill your life with the kind of peace that goes beyond all all understanding. And let let me just say this. For those of you who have already done that, but you're struggling in a storm right now, if you will invite Jesus into your storm, if you will have faith and just say, Lord, I don't know why the storm has not calmed, but I believe you will never leave me or forsake me. And I know you have a promised destination for my life. So I'm going to trust you. He'll give you peace. He'll give you peace. A few years ago, Amy Grant wrote a song called I Need a Silent Night. References the same thing. And in the chorus, she sings this. I need a silent night, a holy night, to hear an angel's voice through the chaos and the noise. I need a midnight clear, a little peace right here to end this crazy day with a silent night. But here's the good news. God has promised his people that they can end each crazy day with the peaceful rest of a silent night. He's promised His people that they can live and experience, live with and experience a God-given peace regardless of the circumstances of their lives. No matter what storm's going on, no matter what's happening in your life, you can walk in peace. And that's God's will for you. It's what He wants for you. Your world may be in turmoil, But here's the good news of the Christmas story. And this is the heart of the gospel message. Here at last is a healing light. You may feel alienated from the rest of the world, rejected and condemned because of who you are, unable to escape the shame that surrounds you, afraid to face the future that lies ahead of you. But here's what I'd like to say to you. Jesus comes to give salvation for all and He embraces you even when you're at your worst. And he can, he can calm the storm that rages around you. And, and dare I add to that, He can calm the storm that rages inside of you. Jesus came to bring you peace. 
to offer you a silent night in His presence. The same salvation He extends to all, He extends to you. Would you bow your head? Father, as we come to you in this moment, Lord, I, I just, as I prepared this message this week, I've, I've felt impressed, Lord Jesus, that there are people here today that are walking through some storms. And I, I believe you brought people here today that needed to hear this. And Lord God, their hearts are longing for peace. But Jesus, we're here to confess that we cannot manufacture that peace. We can't make it happen. But Lord, I know it's a promise that you give to us. You said, my peace I give to you. And so Lord, I'm asking you to do that right now. In this place and what, or on the live stream where, where people may be, whatever, whatever we may be going through. First of all, God, if there's anybody in this place or watching on the live stream that have never surrendered their life to you, I pray, Jesus, they would do it and they would find that peace that, that, that passes understanding in you. And Lord, I just ask that you would lead them to that place. But Lord, I also believe that there are others who do know you, who are, who are right now, their, their hearts are living with chastisement and not peace. Their, their hearts are walking through frustration and not peace. Their hearts are walking through heartbreak and not peace. And I pray, God, that today you would do something in their lives. And with heads bowed and eyes closed, and there's nobody looking around, here's what I want to do today. We, if you're walking through a storm, if you need the peace of God, if you're dealing with something and you say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. Because I, I, want to, I want to remember Jesus is with me. And I want to walk in the peace that He offers. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand today. I'm going to ask you to, I'm going to, ask you to do something a little different. If that's you, I'm going to ask you just to step out from where you are, come to the front of the building, and let us pray for you. Is there anybody? Yes, there's some that are already moving. Anybody else? You'd say, Pastor, I want you to pray. Listen, if you need peace, why in the world would you not step out and come and, and to an altar and say, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Is there anybody else? Yes. Anybody else? You'd say, I need the peace of God that passes understanding. I'm walking through a storm. I'm walking through a heartache. I'm walking through some hard things, whatever it is. Anybody else? Yes, thank you. Here's what I, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask at least a couple of people for each of these people to come. Would you come up here and, and lay your hands on, the, on these and put your arms around their shoulder and make sure they know they're not alone? Would you do that? If somebody could come up here and pray with Mark. The rest of you, would you stretch your hand out toward these that are at the front of the building? And let's just pray. And let's ask the peace of God that passes understanding just to settle in on their lives. Let's pray together right now. Father, 
we come to you right now in the name of Jesus and you see these hearts that have come and their hearts are heavy, their hearts are broken, they're, they're walking through a storm, whatever it may be, God. And, and Lord, we know that Jesus is in the boat and we know that when the master of the ocean and the sky and the sea is in the boat, that the storm does not have the power to overwhelm us. You are with us. And I pray, God, that right now in this moment, you would speak those words, peace, be still. And Lord God, we're, we're asking that you would speak it to the storm, that whatever the circumstance is, whatever the situation is, that you would say to that circumstance, peace, be still, and you would bring about a miracle in that situation. To God, if for some reason... That's not your will. That's You want to do something differently. Then I pray, God, that even in the midst of the storm, you would speak the words, peace be still, into the hearts of these people that are walking through it. Remind them that you are with them, that you promise to never leave them nor forsake them. And God, I pray that right now, in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that the peace of God that passes understanding would settle in on their hearts and their minds, that they would know, God, that whether they know this, the outcome of the circumstances or not is not what really matters. What really matters is that Jesus is with them and he has promised to take them to a specific destination and because you're with them, you will get them where you want them to be. And Lord, I pray that you would continue the work, continue the healing, continue the process of filling them with peace. And when the enemy comes and tries to stir up confusion and chaos, I pray that in Jesus' name that they would stand up against the enemy, that they would submit themselves to you and resist the devil, and that they would say, no, in the name of Jesus, I will walk in peace. Because God is a God of peace. My God is above this storm. My God is greater than this storm. And whether He stills the storm or not, whether He quenches the flames in the furnace or not, is not the point. I know He will see me through. And I pray, God, that Your peace would guard their hearts and their minds. And that everybody around them would see the peace of God that passes understanding. And it would create open doors for them to, to tell others about why they can have peace in the midst of their circumstance. And we give you thanks and we believe you for it. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.